Luke chapter 3, um, we're going to read verses 7 down to, down to verse 18. Let me read it, and uh, we'll pray. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Remember, this is John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let's pray. (laughs) It's a brutal text. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Are we living in that story? Are we living in that reality, Lord? Where it's not just my coworkers said this, or my wife said that, or I need money in the bank. Are we living in a lot of the ultimate things? That hell is real. Your wrath against sin is real. And your grace, interposed by your Son, for the salvation of sinners is real. Heaven is real. Eternity is forever. Open our eyes, God, to the things that really matter. Open our eyes, Lord, to the state of our soul. 
I tremble at these words. There's a part of me that doesn't even like to bring them to these people. I see evidence of your grace all over their lives. But this text is a call for us to examine. A call for us to look in. So are we bearing the fruits of repentance? Are we a tree made new in Christ? Or are we deceiving ourselves? Do we even care? Jesus, I pray that you would help me this morning. Don't let me get in the way of what you want to do with your people, with me. We ask that you would come and address us here this morning through your word, by your spirit, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can tell, even by the way I opened up my prayer there, that I, I feel the, the weight of this text. Um, it's one of the things I love and hate about expositional preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, it brings me to face subjects that I would otherwise want to avoid. It brings me to face things in God's Word that we might just kind of want to gloss over if we could. Because it's not popular. People don't like to hear it. It's not going to fill the pews or whatever. But expositional preaching says every single word, every single verse is in there for God's glory and for our good, no matter what we feel about it. And so it's worthy of our attention. One of these subjects that I might be prone to gloss over or ignore makes its appearance in our text here this morning, namely, hell. I wonder if, as we read these verses, you could almost kind of feel the heat coming off of them. And see the the orange glow of the words, you know, because you just hear John talking about this fire, talking about this axe, talking about this winnowing fork, and things being thrown and burned. It's brutal. It's hard. It's as if the flames of hell have kind of set fire to almost every line of this text. And I imagine that some of you, perhaps even now, are starting to squirm in your seats. Like, wait a minute. Is this, is this Nick guy, is he one of those hellfire and brimstone dudes? That's why I stopped going to church a long time ago. You know, I finally back in. I don't know about this. And I will tell you that I will be as hellfire and brimstone as God is. Meaning, if he says it, if he's talking about it, so will your pastor. And I hope that encourages you rather than discourages you that if it's there, I'm, I'm going into it. And we're going to look at it together. Verse by verse. Hell is not a reality that we like to think about much, right? Um, a lot of churches 
uh, they might believe in it, but they don't preach on it from the pulpit. Or other churches that I'm aware of deny it and then just delete it from their Bibles. Just reinterpret it to mean something else because God is love. How could that be? But while many in the church spend their time either ignoring or deleting the reality of hell, John and Jesus, in one sense at least, live their entire lives in the terrifying light of it. In fact, their ministries cannot be rightly understood apart from the coming wrath of God. No coming wrath Jesus isn't coming. He came to save us from the wrath of God. I got ahead of myself. Let me show you this. John could sum up his whole ministry as warning people to flee from the wrath to come. That's verse 7. This is what John is doing. I am warning people, run from the wrath of God. Or Jesus' ministry... He tells us in Luke 19.10, He came to seek and save the lost. But my question is, seek and save the lost from what? From financial woes? Kind of. Sure. From, from, from health problems? Yeah. Eventually. Fully. From the devil? Absolutely. But none of those take us far enough. He's come to save us, ultimately, from the wrath of God. It's the craziest thing. The gospel can be summed up like this. God, in His love, has come to save us from God in His wrath. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? That's why Jesus came. The cross cannot be understood apart from it. We sang it there. and It was just, I wonder if any of you kind of trembled at that word we sang, and I think it was the it was a beautiful song, second or third song, that He was murdered. On that cross. Why? He's taken the wrath of God for me. It is the wrath of God abiding on men, coming for men, because of God's sheer holiness and our utter sinfulness that is the biggest, most ultimate problem that you and I face. That's it. That's the big one. And, and, and John and Jesus know if you deal with the wrath of God problem, then in due time, every other problem in your life will be taken care of. That's the big one from which all the others kind of come out. You take care of that, you cut it off at its source. Health, financial, sin problems, relation problems, all those, you take care of wrath and God is, on, is putting you on a trajectory towards healing and wholeness. New heavens, new earth. So, 
it is love that constrains them to speak of wrath. And I pray it's the same for me here. It certainly isn't because I want to fill the pews. (laughs) I open this way uh, not because hell is the highest thought of our text this morning. I I don't think it is. Um, But I, I open this way because I think hell is the backdrop for all that's discussed. Um, and as we move through our text these next two weeks, let me give you kind of an outline here. I said two weeks because originally I thought, okay, maybe I could do this in one. It wasn't going to happen. So we're going to get through three verses this morning and we'll tackle the rest next week. Um, but the next two weeks, I'm going to organize my thoughts under four headings. And you can look at the text here um, and see where I'm going. The coming wrath, number one. And that's verse seven. Uh, number two, the necessary fruit. Verses 8 and 9. Uh, verse, or I'm sorry, number 3, the right question. Verses 10 through 14. And then uh, number 4, the mighty Christ. Verses 15 through 18. It's kind of where we're headed. And I have some heavy stuff for us today, so I hope you come back next week. <laughs> it's one of the struggles of not being able to, you know, preach all day like maybe they did back in the glory days. <laughs> So first, let's get into this, guys. The coming wrath, verse 7. John has been going into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's verse 3. He's been going into this region all around the Jordan, proclaiming. He's the voice crying out in the wilderness, Come on, repent. Come to the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what he's doing. And now we see in verse 7 that people are coming. I mean, his ministry is flourishing. People are responding. This is what every pastor dreams of. And I would think this would be cause for celebration. I remember when I was a pastor back in San Luis Obispo, we would do a baptism at the beach there. It was awesome. And, and, and there was a time where, you know, you'd call the people forward and, and, and to be baptized. And every time somebody stood, I mean, there was applause and, oh, this is awesome. We're so stoked, you know. You're coming to the waters. You're coming into Christ and new creation, all this sort of stuff. So I would expect that would be what John's response would be here. And yet it's not that at all. In fact, as you, as you read on and you see these people are coming, it almost seems like he's upset about it. It almost seems like he's kind of like bummed or irritated. And we'll find out why. But immediately it kind of jars us. Here's his opening line in case you don't believe me. You brood of vipers. It's not, you know, it's not just like a nice nickname, you know, for your college buddy. (laughs) Literally translated, you offspring of poisonous snakes. John's choice words here obviously are far from flattering. They indicate that this crowd is full of slippery, wicked, and lethal people. Now, at this point, again, as a pastor, I'm thinking, John, what are you doing? John, dial it down. 
man, these, these, these people are coming. They're responding. This is good. Slow down, brother. You're going to scare them all away. Maybe with John, maybe I was thinking about this. Maybe with John, we grant him to be a little rough around the edges, right? He's been living in the wilderness for like a few decades. He's been eating bugs. He's got camel's hair. It, it, on his, you know, it's, a, it's, it's natural to assume he'd be a little bit, you know, cranky. But I'm telling you, he is not off script here in the least. Not in the least. For countless times, Jesus, in discussion with the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, will say essentially the exact same thing. Let me read you. Matthew 12, 33 through 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Jesus. Jesus. Loving Jesus. Sheep stroking Jesus. <laughs> Saying this. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? He's saying the same thing that John is saying. You're slippery. You're evil. You're lethal. You're pretending to be something that you're not. But there's more beneath these words of John back in our text. Not only are they unflattering and rebuking, they are also theologically charged. I go back here often, but it's because so much of what Luke is trying to tie Jesus' ministry to goes back to the initial problem there in, in, in Genesis 3. And, and, and Luke again and again is showing Jesus to be the solution to this. But I want to go back there again for a moment with you here because these words, you offspring of poisonous snakes, this is recalling the crisis of Genesis 3 and the conflict that was spoken of there in, in verse 15 between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the snake. And John is saying here, Jewish crowds... Though you think you are of the woman, that you're on the side of the promise, you're on the winning side, you're actually on the side of the snake. You're on the side of the curse. You're on the losing side. You're on the wrong side of this conflict. You offspring of poisonous snakes. Again, Jesus, if you think I'm making this up, or you think John is just a little bit cranky, Jesus would not be so discreet in a later conflict he would have with them, the Jewish leaders. He says this in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil. You ought to think that just shook these people to the core. Didn't make them want to change, made them want to kill Jesus. Because they're snakes. They're more like the devil than like God. That's what essentially John is saying here. And as we read on, John's words don't get any more inviting. 
as he says this in the latter part of verse 7, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I was not sure how to read his tone there. Naturally, I kind of wanted to read it as, Who warned you? Like, you shouldn't be here. You're not the ones invited or something like that. I wasn't sure, but as I, as I made my way through this, here are my thoughts. I, I, the, I don't think the issue here is that John doesn't want these people to repent and receive forgiveness for their sin. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think he's saying, you're not invited to this party. No way. No way. I think the issue is that they are still snakes. Meaning, they are still snakes and happy to be snakes, and yet they are coming to be baptized. They're thinking that the religious act alone will somehow kind of cover them and make them good. You know, save them from the coming wrath, but I get to still be a snake. Does this make sense? It's as if they're kind of saying, let's run some water over our scales, and then we'll be fine. We did the, the little magical religious duty and, and, and so now we're good to go on sinning in our snake-like ways. And he says this is not how this baptism works. It's an external representation of something going on inside of you or it is Nothing. It's as if these guys were coming to the water saying, I don't want wrath, but I don't want righteousness either. Does that make sense? I want salvation, to put it positively, but I still want to be a snake. And John is saying, you don't get it. These waters, these waters... It's just symbolic of, 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 of hearts of people saying, I'm so tired of being a snake. I'm so tired of being like my father, the devil. I want to be like my father in heaven. Change me. Will you have me? Can I, can I be in this family? Will you forgive my sin? That's what's being said as you go under. And of course, that's just gets you know, filled out more as we watch baptism develop until it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know we're going down with Christ and up with Him. New life. I don't want to be a snake anymore. And these guys are saying, give me a little snake bath and I'm good. Right? So John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? This is not how it's done. Allow me to draw out an implication um, for the life and mission of our church from all this for a moment. Excuse me. I like doing this from time to time because there's so much you could draw from every verse in the scriptures. <laughs> and, and, and I have a massive problem of drawing out too many. <laughs> I cut out like three or four last night. But here's what I wanted to keep. Because it sets a trajectory for us as a church. And I was just thinking, man, what is what we're witnessing here with John have to say to us as a church? 
Here's my thought. You're not going to find, you're not going to find what we just witnessed there in verse 7 from John the Baptist in any church growth book of our day. That's not how you grow a church. That's how you scare them all away, John. You're blowing it. You're not filling the pews. He's not blindly welcoming all who come and just so happy and counting the numbers and how much tithe did we bring in? No way. He's calling them to count the cost. He's turning up the heat a little bit. Are you the real thing or not? Because we're not just going to fill this place with vipers. We want children of the living God. We don't want to just give kind of false approval and false assurance to people that, that are not living in step with the gospel at all. And so I wondered, could I imagine myself saying this to people professing Christ and wanting to join our church? I might not say it in the same way, but I better be willing to say it if it needs to be said. Otherwise, you want to know what will happen? We will no longer be a church. We'll just slowly start to, the boundaries between the church and the world just start to blur before long. Not even a church. Watching this happen with the issues of our day, guys. We're watching this happen in churches around here. They're just losing it because they're, 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 draw, they're just drawing the lines way too wide. And okay, we're happy to have whoever's coming. And they're, we'll get there. Hold on. <laughs> so many churches, it seems to me, have gone the way of the marketplace. Okay. They provide the service and you are the consumer. You're the customer. We get all our stuff together and look, we have the best children's ministry. We have the, the sweetest band with the coolest hair and the nice lights. We've got the pastor who's sleek and smooth. He's got the iPad. <laughs> We are providing the service. You're the customer. What do you want? We'll give it to you. And this is so dangerous. This is such a dangerous model. Now, we want to be incarnational, but I don't want to be a marketplace. You want to know why? What's kind of the, the, the philosophy if you want to survive out in the, the marketplace? The customer is always right. Because if you tell them they're wrong, they're going to take their business elsewhere. If you love them enough to say, I don't think you're children of God, I think you're snakes. Take my business elsewhere, thank you. And that will affect your budget's bottom line. But do you care enough about the purity of Christ's bride to say some of the hard stuff? And do you care enough about those individuals to say that... This isn't, this isn't the way. The church must not be consumeristic, but covenantal. We're not aiming to fill the pews merely. We're aiming to fill the pews purely. We must learn to walk the line between quantity and quality. You know what I'm saying here? The church better care 
about more people being in. That is a, that's God's heart. We want more to hear. That's why they go to the nations. More, more, more. Quantity. We want that. But we're not willing to distort and dilute the gospel to get it. I would rather have one, one believer in the pews of this church that really knows God and really loves Him and the grace that they've been shown and there's that affection and life in step with the gospel than to have a thousand people who don't know Jesus but they tithe every week. Am I getting crazy? I'm sorry. (laughs) You know what I'm saying though? The tragic irony of it all is that the church can so broaden the way into her sanctuary that she actually turns from the narrow way of the gospel. I am not saying that I think it's our job to be the sin police and get in everybody's face. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that we want to love one another enough to sometimes say the hard thing if we're concerned for the state of a person's soul. I want to learn from John the Baptist here. Number two, the necessary fruit, verses 8 through 9. We continue with with John, and, and at this point we must ask, is there any way of knowing the difference between a snake... And a son. How do you tell? These guys seem to be deceived. Are we deceived? John gives us both a reliable guide and an unreliable one. Okay? How do you distinguish between a snake and a son? A reliable guide and an unreliable one. First, the reliable guide. There in the first part of verse 8, he says this, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. As we read earlier in Matthew 12, Jesus said this, The tree is known by its fruit. In other words, if you want to know whether a tree is good or bad, look to its fruits. We can talk a lot about repenting and believing, but do the fruits hanging from the branches of my life look like the devil or look like my Father in heaven? He's saying that is the reliable guide to determining the the state of one's soul. What do the fruits look like? I can tell you the state of the fig tree in my yard. It's horrible. It looks so good on the outside. We were so excited when we moved in. You start seeing those things on the on the leaves, like no way. You go to bite in, and it's like it's like dirt is in there. It is like dust. It looks good, but there's nothing there, and so you could tell something's wrong with this tree. And and John is saying, okay, you want the real thing? Let's start talking about fruits. Don't just come to the waters of repentance and all this sort of stuff. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. 
Are you, a, are, you, are, you, are you looking like a snake? You're looking like a son. Regarding these fruits that are um, corresponding to or worthy of repentance, that's kind of the literal translation in the Greek, fruits that are worthy of, corresponding to repentance. Regarding these fruits, we'll come to find um, in ne- next week in verses 10 through 14 that John and God have in mind nothing more and nothing less really than love for neighbor. That's verses 10 through 14, but we'll get there next week. There's too much there that I thought was great. I didn't want to go too quickly through it. But it's love for neighbor that is one of the significant fruits held out in the New Testament that would indicate... Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? In fact, hear John the Apostle in 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's our question. And he says this, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Love for neighbor. The, 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 the first and second greatest commandments flow together. They always do. If you want to know if you're loving God, it should be indicated by how you're loving your neighbor. We can trick ourselves because we can't see God. He says, okay, well, how are you doing in loving the ones that you can see? Now, we come to an unreliable guide as we keep reading with John here, the latter part of verse 8. He says this, Do not begin, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Look to the fruits. Don't look to the ancestry. Don't begin to reassure yourselves. No, 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 no. John, you must be mistaken. Here's my ID. Look at me. I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm of his line. And John's saying that is not a reliable guide to the state of one's soul. There's false assurance there. Jews thought that God would ultimately be kind to them because of Abraham's merits, even if they had none. But what John is reminding them here is that every individual will give an account of himself to God. This is really what the Bible means when it says all over the place that God shows no partiality. You know some of those texts? I'll give you a few. Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6. It's a major theme. God shows no partiality. What this means is that Jews don't have an advantage over Gentiles because they are biological children of Abraham. They must have faith and bear the fruit of, of Abraham themselves. They gotta look like Abraham, not just gonna be in his line. Or they're not really, according to the scriptures, true children of Abraham. On the last day, it's not Abraham's faith and fruit that will count for them, but as Paul says in Romans 14, 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God.
Now there's an underlying principle here that will help us apply this to ourselves for a moment. You're just saying, I never would claim Abraham. <laughs> or maybe you would, I don't know. But we'll do other things along the same lines sometimes. Let me show you the underlying principle that's at work in this crowd of Jews. It's shown up really twice now. Uh, first in their approach to John's baptism and, and now in their approach to Abraham. It's kind of this. If, if I have the externals, if I have the externals, who cares about the internals? If I'm washing the, the outside of my body in this baptism, who cares if the inside is washed? I did the thing. We're good. If I am biologically, genetically related to Abraham, who cares if I have the faith and fruit of Abraham inside? I got what matters. God made a promise to him. I'm in that line. We're good. I got the externals. Who needs the internals? Perhaps now we can see how we do this. We could talk about the externals and, 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 and to the neglect of kind of the internal realities sometimes, right? Where you will hear people sometimes, I prayed a prayer. I prayed that prayer when I was seven at, at, at Hume Lake or whatever. I did it. I signed the little paper. We're good. Get out of my business. Or, listen, you think you're cool how you got converted. I walked the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, man. I got the anointing. I'm okay. <laughs> or perhaps it, it getting a little closer to home. It, I, I go to church every Sunday. I do the thing on Sundays. Get out of my, get out of my Monday through Saturday. I give him enough. I read my Bible every morning. I check it off of my list. I don't swear. I don't, I don't, I don't steal. I don't lie. I've got the externals. I'm good, right? And John is coming here saying, okay, yeah, you got the externals. Okay, maybe, but does God have your heart? So if he doesn't have your heart, the externals don't even matter to him. He would say later, circumcision of Abraham, it becomes uncircumcision when you just reject my law in your hearts. I'm telling you, the Gentiles that are doing the law, if they're doing it from their hearts, they're circumcised in the way that I'm after. It's inside that matters. When our confidence rests on these external things to the neglect of the internal realities of our hearts before God, we are in danger of proving to be nothing more than bathing serpents. You're wondering, where is the gospel going to fit in all this, this hellfire and brimstone? <laughs> Hold on. John goes on to give them the basis for what he just said about Abraham. He says in, in the last part now of verse 8, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Don't say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. If God wants children, you're not entitled. If God wants children for Abraham, He could raise them up from these stones. This is at once, this is at once, in an amazing way, both a, 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 a sharp blow to the kind of elitist pride of this Jewish crowd, but it is also it is also a tribute to the sovereign grace of God. Stick with me. On the one hand, John is saying, not only does your ancestry make you no better than the Gentiles, it actually makes you no better than the stones beneath your feet. That is a blow to their pride. You're not better than the Gentiles, and you're not better than the stones. Inanimate, dead, cold. That will knock you back a little bit when you thought we are the head of the nations here. God is going to lift us up. It's going to be glory for me and my people. He says, hold on a minute. So you see the blow to the pride there. I wonder if you see the tribute to God's sovereign grace. Because on the other hand, this is a reminder This idea of stones and children for Abraham and God doing this from nothing. It's a reminder of how God did graciously raise up children for Abraham with Israel. I mean, do you remember how Israel... So we just got done through a lot of that in Luke 1 and 2. Where Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, bodies and womb as good as dead. Dead as stone, you might say. And God says, from you. From you, we're going to raise up a nation. Children, offspring, children for Abraham. And they become Israel. Israel owes their existence to this sort of children from stone, sovereign grace of God. And, and they kind of forgot what it, what it all means. They thought His grace made them not only special among the nations, which it did, it is true. He made them special, it's true. But they thought it also made them superior to the nations. Not true. No way. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. God said, I chose you when you were nothing so that the nations would come in and you could be their servants to them about what this God is like. He takes nobodies. He takes nothings and He changes them. He's bringing them into His family for no reason of their own that they can give an account for. And they forgot it. They got cocky. They missed the point. I chose Abraham and Israel for the sake of the nations, not in spite of the nations. John is hinting here, I think, that God is getting ready to work the miracle again at an even deeper level. This is what the gospel is going to be all about. Taking stone and making from it children for Abraham. This is the new covenant, you guys. This is what Jesus is going to do when He's going to take hearts of stone in Jew or Gentile and He's going to circumcise them, give them the mark of Abraham, if you will, by His Spirit. 
And in so doing, take stone-cold dead sinners and make them children of Abraham, sons of the living God. The sovereign grace is not done. It began with Israel and it's now spreading. And it's going even deeper. So that in Galatians 3.29, Paul would say, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. He's going to make you the real thing. John closes his exhortation here with an ominous threat. Um, this is, we're going we're to end on kind of some of this. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, he says. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, John is just brutal. I mean, Jesus says some of these things other places, but he also says, and if you bear good fruit, I'll make sure you bear more. And he gives the good side. John just says, he's just focusing it. No, there's no fruit. It's fire. But again, he's saying it because he loves these people. And he wants them to take seriously what's going on and what the wrath means and what's required. With the words, even now, uh, there at the beginning of verse 9, John alerts the crowd of the imminence of God's coming judgment. Even now, like right now, like this moment, this is going on, it's, 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 it's coming, it's, it's almost here, it's all but happened already, even now. And then he gives this vivid vivid imagery of of an axe and fire. And with that, John alerts the crowd to the dreadful nature of the coming judgment. I mean, he's he's eliciting fear. It's scary. There's no way around it. But if this is all we observe in these words, then we are mistaken. For there is mercy here as well. And I wonder if... You see it. This warning is actually a sign not only of God's holiness and severity, but of His patience and His kindness. Here's how I see this. John is not the one swinging the axe. He's the one warning about the axe that's about to be swung. But... God doesn't want to swing it. That's the point of a warning. The point of a warning is get out of the way. If you warn someone because a car is coming in the street and you say, get out of the way, the car is almost here. And you don't say that because you want them to get hit. You say that because you don't want them to get hit. There's mercy saturating this warning. As we read last week in Ezekiel 33.11, this is essentially what John is saying here. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what John is calling Israel to and perhaps through Israel to us at this point. He said, I don't desire to cut down this tree. 
turn and live, I would rejoice to see fruit here. I'm reminded of the parable Jesus tells later in Luke 13, 6 through 9. If you're about to go to sleep, listen up at this point. This is awesome. Luke 13, 6 through 9. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You hear the heart of God in this parable. You hear what's going on. You got someone saying, it's not fruitful, cut it down. That's not God's heart. God's heart is, give it one more year. Let me dig around it. Let's put manure on it. Let's pour more grace on it. Let's call out louder. Let's make sure they hear. The axe is at the root of the tree. Do you still want to be snakes? You don't want to go there. Turn and live. There's mercy here. At this point, John's audience can sense both the kindness and the severity of God, as Paul talks about it in Romans 11.22. Kindness and severity. Not kindness that leads to kind of a lackadaisical who cares, but kindness and severity. He's loving and ready to forgive, but if you don't turn, you will die in your sins. And so... As this audience starts to see it, perhaps we start to see it as well, and the burning question then becomes, okay, if wrath is coming and fruit is necessary, what then shall we do? That's verse 10. What then shall we do? And we're going to look a lot more at at John's answer in verses 10 through 14 next week. Right now, I'm just taking you to the bottom line. We don't have time to go, go into what he has to share there. I want to take us to the final Answer the fundamental answer. What then shall we do? Certainly, John is calling us to bear good fruits. And we've got to feel the weight of that. But he is not calling us to bear good fruits through the law through our own strength. He is calling us to do such things through the person and work of the Messiah. We must never think that we can divorce repentance and bearing fruit from the forgiveness of sins that this baptism was a symbol of. And union with Christ. We never, we can never think that we turn and bear fruit on our own. No way. John's ministry will not allow this. John will not allow the people to go on their way without seeing the whole reason for his coming. 
which is to prepare the way of the Lord, to point people to Him. Yes, fruit is necessary. Yes, wrath is coming. But it doesn't mean squeeze out and change something on your own. It means turn to the One who can change you. Turn to the only fruitful vine, all you barren, fruitless branches. This becomes all the more plain as we keep reading in our text, verse 15 and 16, Luke 3. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. See this? Oh, he's saying powerful stuff. He's telling us what he might be the Christ. John will not have it. He knows if he accepts that, if he doesn't lead them to Christ, he has just sentenced them to hell. They won't bear the right kind of fruit. It'll lead to more self-righteousness and everything else. So John answered them all saying, no, no, no. I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's why I titled these two messages, Jesus the Baptist. Not because he's a Baptist in theology. It's because he's come to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And John is saying, don't confuse me for anyone important. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. Okay? I exist to direct you to Him. He is where repentance takes you. He is where forgiveness takes is found. He is how you will bear fruit. The water of uh, the water baptism that I have was just a means of preparing you for the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to change you. That's how you're going to start to bear fruit because you know what this means. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Pentecostal, forgive me for even some member, some branches of the the, the Christian uh, uh, theological world have made that basically synonymous with speaking in tongues. That's not. That's not. As we'll follow through Acts, if we get a chance to do that, what you see. That's not the point. Baptism of the Spirit. It means that Christ, by virtue of His death for our sin, and His resurrection for our justification. And His ascension for our assurance to the right hand of the Father. By virtue of that, He was given the right to pour out His Spirit upon His people. And what happens then? But we are born again. The baptism of the Spirit is God coming into a human being, writing His law there on the heart. It's plugging us in to the fruitful vine of Jesus Christ. He's paid for our sins. Now He can get to work on developing in us righteousness. Conforming us now not to the image of the serpent, but to the image of His heavenly Father. Making us children of His God and ours. That law 
love for others, love for God, it's being written here now by the Spirit. Jesus, by baptizing His people in the Holy Spirit, is taking serpents and stones and making them sons and daughters of His Father. That's how we start to bear good fruit. You change the tree. You don't wash the serpent. You kill the serpent. And you bring him in. You bring him into the family of God. He changes the tree. Because He changes the heart. And we start loving others like we have been loved by Him. Make no mistake, guys. If you are seeing sin in your life and things, we are still sloughing off snake skin, are we not? But inside is not a snake anymore. Is a child of God. We're still just kind of extremities we are sloughing off. We're still cracking off pieces of a hard heart, are we not? But inside, something is beating, something is warm, something is alive. And so we don't experience sin and all these things the same way. I don't want it. I want forgiveness. I want freedom. I want, I want to look like my Heavenly Father. That's there. Judgment will go well for you. It will be transformed from a day of wrath to a day of, of hope, as I read in Titus 2. We're waiting for that day now because of what He has done. I'll leave you with this. Bearing fruit does not begin with the flexing of our muscles. It begins with the bending of our knees. Coming to Jesus, not just on the day of our conversion, but every day thereafter. In this way and in this way only, not only shall we, be, or I'm sorry, shall we bear fruits worthy of repentance. Pray with me. Jesus, we are not after cleaning up the outside merely. We want to be changed inside. And I know in this room I am not speaking to the same kind of crowd that John was speaking to. There are a lot here who love you from the depths. You have gotten a hold of them. You have, in a sense, baptized them in your Holy Spirit. You have come in, poured your Spirit out on them, regenerated them by your grace, brought stones to life. I only pray, God, that you would help us to continue bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And maybe there are some here who felt just nervous even as I was saying things and wanted to run out of this room. God, if you are putting your finger on things in their hearts in ways perhaps they've been deceived, would you lead them? Lead them to Jesus and bring them to life. Change the tree, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.